From ancient times, the Liturgy of the Hours has served as the public and communal prayer of God's people. It has been called the Vox Sponsae, the voice of a bride, addressed to her bridegroom. It is the very prayer which Christ himself, together with his church, offers to the Father for the glory of God and the salvation of the world. Hey everyone, I'm glad you could join us for our fifth episode of Vogue Sponsae, a podcast on the Liturgy of the Hours. My name is Nathan Wigfield, and I serve as the director of the St. Thomas More House of Prayer in Cranberry, Pennsylvania. And in just a second, I'm going to be joined by my good friend Gabriel Crawford in Seattle, Washington. But before that, I want to encourage you to visit the website of the St. Thomas More House of Prayer at liturgyofthehours.org. There you're going to find all kinds of resources on praying the Liturgy of the Hours, including a free PDF guide to getting started, page numbers for praying with the church each day of the year, a blog, online store, and more. When you visit our website, you can also sign up for our monthly online newsletter, and we'll send you a free copy of our night prayer book. Be sure to look us up on Facebook and Instagram, which we are updating regularly with inspiring quotes, sacred art, and information on events that we host at our retreat center. Lastly, we want to hear from you. If you have any questions for us or would like to give us feedback on the podcast, please email us at info at liturgyofthehours.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. All right. Good morning, Gabriel. Hey, good morning. We are in episode five. This is, we're moving right along through the general instructions. Last week, we talked about the witness of the early church and I think had a really kind of uh, clarifying conversation for me. I think one of the things that was, that was kind of came out of that conversation was how uh, the, how fixed our prayer really developed in the first few centuries. I think even as we, Gabriel, as you and I discussed uh, the very early kind of uh, practice of the, of the Christians that we have recorded in the, in, mm-hmm. in the book of Acts, uh, as we look, took a look at that and then slowly kind of worked through even some of the texts that we have in the second and third centuries, what I got to see, I think even just through that conversation, is how it gradually developed over time. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't yeah. like uh, all of a sudden, you know, in the book of Acts, you had this perfect uh, or this kind of codified set of prayers that the Christians were praying, but they were they were really operating from this conviction that prayer was very important and they needed mm-hmm. to do it mm-hmm. on a regular basis. And they were doing it in concert with uh, some of the sacrifices in the temple, but also uh, doing it in doing it privately within their homes as well. But then as time went on, you see more and more kind of organization. You see it being not institutionalized, but certainly coming from the fathers. It was the early Christians were being instructed. This is what prayer ought to look like in your life. You ought to be praying at certain times throughout the day. And then as this gradually developed, it became more informal and adopted into the public uh, liturgy, the praises of of the churches, uh, the cathedral offices that we find in the fourth century, et cetera. But uh, nonetheless, you know, I think we got to see last week this, this history of the development of the liturgy of the hours within the life of the early church. And this week we're going to dive into, we're going to continue with uh, paragraphs three and four in the general instructions, which really hone in on the prayer of Jesus and how this served as a foundation 
for uh, the prayer, or this really does serve as the foundation for the prayers of the church. So, yeah, yeah we're gonna we're gonna dive in. Uh, I think we've decided to kind of jump over paragraph three and kind of get right into paragraph four, where it talks about specific examples that in the Gospels where that give us a picture of what Jesus's own prayer life looked like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and just to comment on the um, your previous statement before we jump into this on the development of liturgy, you know, this this process of slow incremental growth, I think, is fairly paradigmatic for how the church develops. Mm-hmm. You know, we think about how the our, how her theology has developed, like her prayer. Mm-hmm. You know, the theological understanding of our faith in the first centuries of the church is more immature than it is now. Like it's mm-hmm. grown right. towards maturity, right? It's like St. Right. Paul, he's like, well, I can only give you guys milk, but I really want to give you steak. You know, there's this <laughs> growth into like depth. And so the same thing with the prayer of how like there's a slow process of, of deepening and understanding the ways of prayer. And I think some people could say, could actually criticize this process and say, oh, well, this is just the institutionalization of prayer, Mm -hmm. where it goes from something, you know, the kind of perfection of first century organic gospel development prayer, and then it begins to be institutionalized in a post-Constantinian acceptance of of Christianity as the religion of the empire. Mm -hmm. And then things get institutionalized. And and I I think that- Incorrupted. In, yeah, and corrupted. And, and that's just not how it is. Mm-hmm. Right? It's the slow, organic um, development of the faith over time. Right. Yeah, I've always liked Cardinal Newman's example of the acorn uh, and uh, the tree coming to full flourishing. You know, you have uh, in the early church and, you know, in the, in the first, you know, several centuries, the lives of the fathers, the teaching of the fathers, you have kind of this gradual growth and development. And it's not as if, you know, it started from a tree and then all of a sudden the fathers proposed, well, let's put a tree beside this one. Let's plant a tree beside mm-hmm. this one and allow it to grow. Yeah. But it was rather the growth from in seed form, what was, you know, early on the practice of the church and as the church in her infinite wisdom inspired by the Holy spirit given by Christ who promised that he would send the Holy spirit and lead them into all truth. This tree began to really take root and to grow and to flourish and to spread its branches and become, you know, what it, what it is, what it is today. And I think you're right on. And even to clarify, I think in our discussions and the reason why we would start with, let's say, the witness of the early Christians is not to say that, oh, we're trying to get back to this kind of pure form of prayer that the the apostles clearly witnessed to, but rather to kind of just be honest about the history, take a look at the history and see how that has come to development so that we can better appreciate the great gift that we have been Mm -hmm. given Mm -hmm. uh, in what we know today as the Liturgy of the Hours. Yeah. Well, let's let's dive into... um taking a look at the, at the prayer of Jesus. Sounds good. Right. And, and just a comment, like why, right. Why look at the prayer of Jesus? Because simply enough, like he's our model Mm -hmm. in the faith. And so 
what does Jesus's prayer look like? And then how can that influence our prayer lives as well? Mm -hmm. Right. In addition to being our Lord, uh, he is also our master and he is our teacher. And so he does, he does give us an, uh, an example, uh, not just to follow or be inspired by it, but an example to imitate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's start with section four. It says, in his goodness, the son of God, who is one with his father, and who said on entering the world, here I am, I come, God, to do your will, has left us testimony to his own prayer. The Gospels very frequently show us Christ at prayer. And then it says, when his mission is revealed by the Father, and it uh, footnotes Luke 3, 21 through 22. So we'll, let's look at that. And so Luke 3, 21 to 22 says this. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form as the dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So this is, we're in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. This is before Jesus um, is hurled into the wilderness to be tempted by mm -hmm. the devil for uh, 40 days. And one thing I like about this is, this is foundational for every person's prayer life, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus had just been baptized and was praying and the Holy Spirit descends upon him and a voice comes from heaven. So first, this is Trinitarian, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus through the Holy Spirit is in, is listening to his father and he hears a voice. He hears, you are my beloved son. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing is, Every single one of us needs to hear the words, you are my beloved son, right? And even if as a woman, we ne you need to hear, you are my beloved daughter. But something that's interesting is even as a woman, you need to hear the words, you are my beloved son, mm -hmm. because we are baptized, whether male or female, into Christ. And... Therefore, as Augustine says, you are Christ. Um, Christa Fidelis Slechi, uh, the document from 1987 on the, on the laity, quotes Augustine th with that phrase of you are Christ. And so when we read this, right, the Father can say to us, like, you are my Jesus. Mm -hmm. Why? Because of baptized. We're because of baptism, we're baptized into Christ. And, and, and so we need to hear that in the depths of our hearts. You are my beloved son. And then the second part is I'm well pleased. I'm well pleased with you. That is completely antithetical to the typical voices that we hear of God saying, I'm displeased with you, or I'm ashamed of you, or, um, or we say those kinds of things to ourselves. And that's not the case. Right, it's God saying, it's the Father saying to us, "I'm I'm well pleased with you, mm -hmm. your beloved," and and that's so. In this experience, it's first it's rooted in baptism, and second, it's prior to prior to his public ministry. It's pri it's prior to everything that he's about to do. It's because it's foundational. It's important, you know, as you say, it's 
important that we're baptized into the son, that we say that, you know, you are my beloved son, that, that, you know, the father, when he looks at us, he sees his son in us. He sees Mm -hmm. the perfect image, his own perfect image. He sees the perfect image of his son in each of us. And it is with his son that he is well-pleased. And by virtue of his son, it is with us that we, he is well-pleased. And so we have been incorporated into him. I think the other thing, you know, and I don't, I don't know if you've noticed this before in this passage, but I'm glad the general instructions draws this out because I think in the many years of kind of reading over this, I've never really noticed these words that when he was baptized, he was praying. That after Jesus is baptized, it's a, you know, and it says, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened. And so I think, you know, here you have the great, uh, the twofold foundational uh, reality for the Christian life, and that is sacraments and prayer. You know, that you have baptism, which incorporates us into Christ. You have baptism, which you know, forgives original sin, which unites us to Christ, which makes us his adopted sons. So you have that objective reality that is accomplished mm-hmm. through God's initiation, through God's action. But then you also have the corresponding uh, reality of, of prayer, the, cor- the response that we offer to him entering into a life of prayer, not just uh, whereby we speak to him, but whereby we listen we listen for his voice. And I yeah, think that's can, always, yeah, go ahead. You can't have sacrament without devotion. Mm-hmm. Um, as Christians, we can't rely simply upon this, a sacramental life without a devotional life as well. We need the sacraments and we need to live into that sacramental life through our prayer. You can't just go to church on Sunday and receive the sacraments and then go live the rest of your life without having recourse to the Father mm-hmm. in prayer. Mm-hmm. The two have to be united. Yeah, and these, you know, this, just even this one passage gives us the exact model that is held out for us in, in the church in terms of the importance of, of the liturgy as a whole. It is his prayer that we want to participate in. It is his baptism Mm -hmm. that we want to be baptized into. You know, Mm -hmm. so Christ is baptized in order, not because he needs baptism, but because we need it. And so when we are baptized, we are baptized into him. Our baptism is made effective in accomplishing our, the, this kind of initial stage of our salvation because Christ himself was baptized, because as the fathers say, you know, he sanctified the, by the waters. You know, I think as Ephraim the Syrian said, you know, he sanctified the waters and he left his robe of glory in the waters. So that when mm-hmm. we're baptized, we take up that robe of glory and we become bright, shining uh, images of Christ the Son. And so, but then also his prayer, you know, so if we are baptized into him, he also gives us the means by which we can participate in his prayer. And it is in his prayer that we hear those words that are spoken to him. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And, you know, certainly we can apply this to developing a, a good, healthy prayer life, a regular prayer mm-hmm, life mm-hmm. in general. 
But I think more specifically, and in related to you know this podcast and what we're what we're seeking to cultivate uh, through diving a little bit deeper into the liturgy of the hours, is that Christ Himself has left to us a prayer that is just like the sacraments is objectively true, or it it objectively accomplishes what it sets out to do, and that is to invite us and to incorporate us into the prayer of Christ so that we can pray as sons of the Father, and we can Mm -hmm. hear as sons of the Father what Christ himself heard, you are my beloved son. Yeah, yeah. And this, this is the quintessential hymn of praise that is sung in the heavenly places. And maybe we can, um, we can shift fire and take a look at that previous passage in um, the general instructions, because if anything, the son, like hearing the voice of the father of love and, and the son praying to the father, this, this very difficult thing to communicate of the dynamic relationship of the son to the father and the father to the son in the communion of the Holy Spirit. Like this is the quintessential hymn of praise that happens in the very life of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And the general instructions wants to, um, to bring that forth. Right. right. And so why don't, why don't you read that passage for us? Sure. Yeah. Uh, the paragraph three states that when the word proceeding from the father as the splendor of his glory came to give us all a share in God's life, Christ Jesus, high priest of the new and eternal covenant, taking human nature, introduced into this earthly exile, the hymn of praise that is sung throughout all ages in the halls of heaven. From then on, in Christ's heart, the praise of God assumes a human sound in words of adoration, expiation, and intercession presented to the Father by the head of the new humanity, the mediator between God and his people in the name of all and for the good of all. And so, uh, I mean, right out the bat, you know, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, wow, this is dense. Like, we could probably spend the next year kind of unpacking, you know, what's all in uh, in here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think what is, you know, what is essentially conveyed here is that without the incarnation, we have no hope to be able to offer worthy praise to God. Mm-hmm. Right. The very first line sums it up. Um, when he came to give men and women a share in God's life. Mm-hmm. So this passage from Romans 3 has been on my, my mind recently. And it says, uh, since all have sinned and are deprived of the glory of God. Mm-hmm. So I, my, my passage from the RSV actually says, um, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in the English, we kind of, it's kind of difficult to understand. Like when I hear fall short of the glory of God, I think of like, if I need to, if I'm going to jump across a, a big gap mm-hmm. and I got to get to the other side, like, let's say the other side is God's glory. And there's this big gap between me and God's glory. And I'm going to jump across and on my own efforts, I fall short. Mm-hmm. Right. There's, mm-hmm. and it, in one sense, that language makes it sound like I, you know, because of my sin, I can't achieve God's glory. Mm-hmm. But I think 
that language kind of misses the mark a little bit versus the other translation of all have sinned and are deprived of God's glory. Like we're lacking. Mm-hmm. So, and what are we lacking? We are lacking God's glory. We're deprived of it because of our sin. So we're less full of what we ought to be full of. And I mean, so which, which puts into a proper perspective um, the beginning of the gospel of Luke, when the Archangel Gabriel says to Mary, um, hail full of grace, right? Mm-hmm. She is not lacking something, but she is full of grace um, because she's the Immaculate Conception. But us, um, we have sinned and are deprived of the glory of God. We're lacking while the Blessed Virgin Mary was not because of the retroactive merits of Christ applied to her. Anyway, that puts this, this into perspective of in the general instructions, when he came to give men and women a share in God's life. Why? Because we're lacking. We're lacking God's life. And how does he do it? By becoming human. He opens the doorway for us to share in, to participate in, to receive, to be like a car where the gas tank is and we're, we're being filled up um, of God's life and, and his glory. Yeah, yeah, I think if he, he's come to give us his glory, something that we are deprived of, mm-hmm. it, and he comes to, sh- to make us shares in that glory, he comes to in- introduce to us the means by which we are to share in that. Because he's not just here to kind of deposit something and to say, here you go, just you know, receive it. He wants reciprocity. Like he's, he's relationship, right? So he wants to incorporate us into his relationship with the father. And how is he going to do that? What is, how are we going to be restored to his glory, but through the praise, through being incorporated into the praise that he offers to the father from all eternity. And I think Mm. that's, you know, if you go back to the beginning, you know, there's some fathers who would comment on the, how is it that Adam came to, came to sin? And essentially, it was, you know, that he, um, he did not live a Eucharistic life. Eucharistia in the Greek, obviously meaning Thanksgiving, uh, you know, that he did not live a life of praise and Thanksgiving. He did, not, he did not receive what God had given and offer it back to God in praise and Thanksgiving, but rather, rather saw what God had given as something that he was first entitled to, and therefore took that which was not rightfully his to take. Right, because <laughs> pra- praise and thanksgiving is a response to what one has received. It's not a taking from that which one is not entitled to re- is not entitled to. And so, <laughs> how is it that Adam, you know, is restored, but through being made sharers into the praise and the glory that we have all- always been created to offer to God? You know, I think in the abstract. I've always thought about the incarnation in relationship to sin and, mm-hmm. you know, and rightfully so. I'm not saying we, we, we shouldn't think of it in relationship to sin yeah, because, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, because he has assumed our nature in order, our sinful nature in order to redeem us. Um, but it's not the whole picture, you know, that he's assumed our nature, not just so that he could 
redeem us, but the, he, so that he could restore us to glory. And how would he do to do this? And, and in this paragraph, he says, you know, if he has, he proceeds from the father as a splendor of glory, and he's come to give us all a share in God's life. So it's spoken of in the positive, not just to forgive us of sin, but to mm-hmm. make us share in his own life. And how is he to do this? By taking a human nature and introducing into this earthly exile the hymn of praise that is sung throughout all the ages in the halls of heaven. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, this is language that uh, I found in one of the encyclicals from uh, Pius Twelfth in the early 1900s, uh, Mediator Day. And, you know, he says something similar. He says, by assuming human nature, the divine word introduced into this earthly exile, him which is sung in heaven for all eternity. And he unites to himself the whole human race and with it sings this hymn of praise to God. And so, you know, I love this language of, you know, he unites in, in assuming our nature, he unites us to himself. He unites the whole human race to himself and with it together with us, offers this hymn of praise to God that he's been offering for all eternity. And so he incorporates that, uh, he incorporates us into his own praise. And this becomes the means by which we come to share in God's life. Yeah. And if we think about the order of how things are created, that before temporal, corporal, things are made, God had created the angelic host, which are incorporal. Mm -hmm. And so before anything corporal was made, the angelic host was giving praise to God. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of this gap between the praise of the heavenly host and corporal created things and so how how would how would corporal physical things participate in the incorporal non-physical spiritual worship of god unless god took upon himself corporality mm-hmm. physicality if unless the word became flesh uniting right the spiritual and, and, and the bodily, the spiritual and the physical. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, and not only, not only assuming our flesh, but then by virtue of assuming our flesh, he begins to, he incorporates our praises into into his own. And so, uh, you know, in the next, in the next part of this paragraph, in the last sentence of this paragraph, it says from then on, from then on, like from the moment of the incarnation on in Christ's heart, the praise of God assumed a human sound in words of adoration, expiation, and intercession. I mean, this is astounding that, that, you know, from all eternity, you know, I think it's blessed Columba Marmion who says that, you know, from all eternity, uh, the word dwelled in the bosom of the father in the union of the Holy spirit. And in that communion, the word was the great canticle of praise of the father from all eternity. And it was, you know, another uh, church father, I'm not sure if it was Gustin or not, but, you know, says that, you know, God, the father spoke one word from all eternity. And that was his Mm -hmm. son. Mm -hmm. That was the Mm -hmm. one word. And, 
And that, that, uh, that one word was a canticle of praise. It was a canticle mm-hmm. of praise that was offered back to the Father. And, mm-hmm. and so what does, you know, since we, by being corporal beings, right, created, created and then having sinned, how are we to even begin to know how to praise God in a way that even comes close to matching that perfect canticle of praise that has been uh, quote unquote sung from all eternity. How is it even possible? You know, you think of St. Paul's words, like we do not even know how to pray as we ought. And therefore the spirit intercedes for us in our weakness. You know, so, so take that and say, we do not even know how to praise as we ought. And so therefore the eternal word that proceeded from the father, from all creation that was this great canticle of praise became incarnate and not only became incarnate, but began to praise God through human sound in words of adoration, expiation and intercession and presented this praise to the father for our name and for the good of all. And I love that that you emphasized from then on the praise of God wells up in the heart of Christ. Um, from the moment of the incarnation on. And I don't know, this is my own theological musing here, but I've been, I've, I've been using the word, um, the divine zygote. Okay. That's, that's my coin. I'm yeah, coining yeah. divine zygote. <laughs> because uh, from then on, when? Like, what, what, what would have been the moment of incarnation? It has to be, like, if we think of how is a human being formed, but a small gamete fertilizes a large gamete. But in the incarnation of Christ, there is no small gamete present. Mm. So the Holy Spirit, as the spouse of Mary, um, <laughs> fertilizes the large gamete. So, and makes what? A zygote. And from, from then on, the divine zygote, the that in the even very formation of the human being, mm-hmm. the word proceeding from the Father is giving praise right. to God in just a mysterious, mystical, beautiful way, right? Because whatever the word did not assume, he could not redeem. And so the word assumed this very beginning phase of human development. Um, and even in this moment, God is being praised, mm-hmm. right? And, and so we even see that when Mary walks into the presence of Elizabeth and, and the infant leaps in her womb with joy, simply by the presence, right? Mm-hmm. Perhaps, and, and yeah, it's magnificent. It is. So I don't know yeah, if that's, a, uh, I mean, it's, know, we'll have to get the imprimatur if that's accurate of me to say. <laughs> so if it's, if any theologians out there are like, yeah, no, Gabriel, we can't say that. I, you know, I humbly accept that, but I'm going to go with it for now. <laughs> but I think it is, it's just, you know, to think about from the very moment of conception that this mm-hmm. word, this one word that was spoken from the father from all eternity, this canticle of praise, you know, began to take on human flesh and began to in assuming even those early stages of human development assumed what is ours in order to make us share in what is his. 
there's this uh, quote from Dr. Peter Kwasniewski. Uh, I've read a lot of his works and, and really appreciate uh, his perspective on the liturgy. And, you know, he says, uh, he said in a talk one time, I had to like slow down the talk and repeat it over and yeah, over again, yeah, yeah. like get this quote down because uh-huh. it, was, it was so good. I think he gave this talk at Silverstream Priory in, in, uh, in Ireland. In Ireland, and yeah. He says, let us ponder Christ praying the Psalms of David. Here we have the new Adam, father of the world to come, praying the old Psalms of a child of Adam. The word who enlightens all men and inspirits the prophets is the very author of these Psalms. They are his own creation, no less than the heavens and the earth and all the hosts and, and all the hosts of them. Yet the word made flesh submits to these words as prayers already there which he planted in history for the formation of his own sacred heart, forgiving his lips and lungs and vocal cords their best exercise for joining him as fully as possible with the people of Israel and the human condition he assumed. It's like, you know, just to think of, you know, these praises, you know, that these praises that the word himself, the word incarnate, Jesus Christ took up, you know, as already planted in history by his own foreknowledge, by his own providence, planted there for the formation of his own sacred heart so that he might make use of his vocal cords, his lungs, and and to offer the praises of Israel, Israel to sanctify them and to uh, incorporate them into his own praise of the Father Mm -hmm. in heaven. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. just you know, this kind of stuff is, you know, you can say, oh, man, that's really abstract. It's really kind of like, you know, where's the practical application? And I just want to say, you know what, you know, when I, in about 13 minutes, when I go to pray mid-morning prayer, you know, this, this is going to change my prayer. This is going to tr- change the way I consciously enter into the divine mm-hmm. praises that are offered up in the liturgy of the hours. Because when mm-hmm. I go to take up the Psalms, you know, what's going to be on my heart and my mind is that this is the prayer of Christ. These are the words of Christ. These are, this is the prayer by virtue of the incarnation, the word assuming our flesh in order to make us shares in his praise. You know, I get the opportunity to share in the perfect praise that he offers to the father now in heaven with all the angels and saints. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that the son always the son is the mediator, the one mediator before the father. Mm-hmm. And so it's him who prays to the father. And so like anything we do is participating in that. Mm-hmm. And so, and so the liturgy, of the hours is praying those, those perfect words. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, and to, to go back to even, you know, where we had started with regards and we only got through one of the, one of these verses, <laughs> we, had, we had plans to kind of go through each of those, these verses, kind of talk about them, but um, you know, I'm glad we started here. I mean, this is, this is the great thing about uh, you know, when you're given a document like this from the church on the, you know, on the liturgy of the hours, you just kind of go through and you realize, wow, it really helps usher you into the depths of this prayer in yeah. a way that, you know, in a way that other things can't. So, but, you know, baptism, you know, Jesus is baptized and he's praying. He's baptized Mm -hmm. and he's praying. Christ assumed what is ours in order to give us what is his. And the way that he has incorporated us into his own life and his love and the praise that he offers to the father is the sacraments, the, the, the sacraments, the liturgy, 
in the, in the, in the divine praises that he offers to the Father, that he has left to his church through the divine office or the liturgy of the hours. <laughs> absolutely and essential. I, and it's absolutely essential, but, you know, it's also, like, Jesus' very being and existence gives praise to the Father. So everything the Word did what, was what the Word is. So everything he spoke and everything he did was one and the same. And, and it's similar like to us, this time in between praying the hours, this time between mm, morning prayer right. and afternoon prayer, there's this big gap of doing other things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like the Benedictine principle of ora et labore, right. of work and prayer. Like, our prayer is work, but our work is prayer. Mm-hmm. Our, our being is prayer. Mm-hmm. And our being is prayer when it is through the Spirit united into the praise of God through the Son. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I think we also need to remember that aspect of, of our whole life is that we are, to, we are meant to become prayer. We are meant to be prayer. Um, and it's through these moments of pause, um, of, of really consciously uh, entering into praying physically with our mind and heart in, in this way, we can, in the gaps between, be prayer as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think we can just take our cues from this passage, you know, being that this comes when, you know, as the general instructions say, you know, when his mission is revealed by the Father. So this comes right before, you know, his mission is is revealed and that he begins to go about his public ministry, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, you know, okay, you have sacraments and prayer as the font. It's, you have sacraments and prayer as the very source by which we're not only to go about our daily lives and our tasks and responsibilities, but by which we are to sanctify those tasks and responsibilities. You know, so if we are to become prayer, we start at the fountainhead. We start at Christ's prayer. We start with what he himself has entrusted to us. And when we are incorporated into his prayer, then we're able, we're enabled to, uh, through that inspiration, Go about our days, our tasks, our responsibilities to sanctify, to sanctify those things and to make of them an offering. You know, that's a beautiful thing. Like, let's say you were to commit to the daily discipline of praying morning and evening prayer. You begin by sanctifying the first moment of your day by praying morning prayer, being incorporated into Christ's own prayer. And through doing that, you're enabled then to you know, let's say just to use, I know we haven't gotten into this passage, but it's like the transfiguration, yeah. right? In the morning, we go up the, we go up the mountain to pray. We, re, we mm-hmm. not only do we dwell with Christ in prayer, we offer the divine praises. We hear the voice of the father. And then from there, we come back down the mountain in order to sanctify the moments and the responsibilities and the tasks that we have throughout the day. But even as we do that, we gather up throughout the day we gather up all of those, all of those things, our struggles, our joys, our sufferings, our, even our, you know, our sins, our, um, our weaknesses, our frailty. We gather all of this up and we bring them back, you know, at evening prayer, we bring them back and we make it, make of them an offering. We unite those to Christ 
We unite those to him and we pray that he would purify them. And he does, Mm -hmm. you know, he Mm -hmm. does through his own prayer. And so it's like, you know, it's this beautiful thing where you don't have a competition between like, you know, praying, let's say the liturgy of the church or, you know, frequenting the sacraments and then the rest of life. It's really a matter of being rooted in the right place of finding your source and inspiration in the right place and also directing all of your life, your activities, your responsibilities, directing it all towards the, the proper end. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a matter of, of having the self-discipline to, you know, it's like in, in Mark chapter one, verse 35, that, that the general instructions will, will quote. And it says, and in the morning, a great while before day, he rose and went out to a lonely place and there he prayed. Mm-hmm. So before Jesus began his work, very early in the morning would go into a place of solitude and pray. Like that's, that's a, a, his, his state in life allowed him to leave his house and mm-hmm. go to a lonely place and pray. Like I wouldn't be able to really do that on a daily basis. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> would kill me. Um, <laughs> And, but in, in accord to our, our prayer should be fitting for our state of life. But at the same time, our prayer ought to precede the work of our day. Like we need to have the discipline to begin our day by setting out into a lonely place, right? Even if mm-hmm. it's that's a silent chair in a basement mm-hmm. um, and begin our day with God. And then we need to have the self-discipline, which is really hard as we are proceeding through our day to, to start to take moments of, of pause and recollection. And even if it's just a moment of, of lifting up our hearts to the Lord and, and recentering ourselves, refocusing ourselves and continuing to live in the presence of God throughout the day. Mm-hmm. But that takes self-discipline and it has to be in accord with our state of life. Like we can't, right. St. St. Francis de Sales emphasized this, like we can't neglect our duties um, because we want to pray where things are disordered. You know, the married man or wife can't spend her whole day in the church and then have a house that's like filthy and dirty, you know? And I say that for myself, like, no, you can't be in adoration. Um, you need to like take care of the kids. Mm-hmm. You need to do your duties. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, you know, and to wrap up, I think one of the things that, you know, we, we recognize is that to just talk about having a disciplined prayer life that is in accord with our state in life and, you know, can be flexible enough to adjust to, you know, and to accommodate the various responsibilities that we have, which are important and are, you know, p- uh, part of our vocation, um, you know, to, to be able to, to actually do that, to have that discipline, usually requires some structure, uh, requires mm-hmm. some kind of external, uh, we were talking about this earlier before the episode, but uh, some external motivator. And I think one of the gifts of the Liturgy of the Hours in the form that we have it, especially in the, you know, the Reformed, there goes the bell, I need to get to prayer. Um, <laughs> but to have it in the form that we do, to have the Liturgy of the Hours, uh, you know, it is such a great gift to provide that structure that we need so often need in order to mm. take a midday moment of rest, let's say, and to offer the praises of God 
um, to do that even within five to seven minutes or, you know, to begin by practicing morning prayer, evening prayer, maybe adopting, you know, night prayer, not all at once, but just, you know, in bits and pieces, you know, to do what we can with what we've been given, um, yeah. essentially. So I better wrap up and get to the chapel. Speaking uh, of discipline. Right. You know, so, um, but uh, why don't we, uh, why don't we close in our prayer? Yep. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless us, protect us from all evil, and bring us to everlasting life. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, all Son, right. and the Spirit. All right, Gabriel. Talk okay. to you later. God bless. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Vox Sponse, a podcast on the Liturgy of the Hours brought to you by the St. Thomas More House of Prayer, a Catholic retreat center in the Diocese of Erie, Pennsylvania, with the mission of praying and promoting the Liturgy of the Hours the public and communal prayer of the Catholic Church. For more information, visit us online at liturgyofthehours.org.